But I'd like to give a couple of remarks just to demonstrate what critical race theory is and then talk about some of its most prominent features. Um, not necessarily accepting all of its premises at face value, but showing how it operationalizes in the United States and then providing at the end maybe some kind of uh, warning for how it might uh, be superimposed back to European countries. Critical race theory promises to be the new face of Marxism. Um, in Hungary, you've seen the old face of Marxism, quite hideous face. Um, and it's been reinvented using some distinctly American categories. And I think there are two key innovations in this ideology. First, it's Marxism passed through the filter of race. That's the first filter. It kind of prisms out from there. And second, it's Marxism adapted to a postmodern and post-Soviet uh, historical condition. Uh, in a sense, it's post-Marxist Marxism that is grappling with and adapting itself to the failures of the 20th century. Um, one of the things that John mentioned is that this, this linguistic game that uh, the left always plays. Well, you can't define this, you can't define that. Um, it's really a, a kind of bankrupt game. Words, sometimes general concepts are very hard to define. Sometimes a single signifier can be interpreted in different ways. And what they're really doing is, you know, you see someone on a street corner. I don't know if they do this in Europe or if it's American, but you've seen the three-card Monty, right, where they put the cups or the cards and they try to hide the ball. Um, it's the same thing with words. They're playing a game of three-card Monty with language. And in fact, the critical race theory is relatively simple to define. Uh, they define it themselves. All you have to do is read their literature. I think they would argue, and treating it kind of uh, at, at face value, that critical race theory is a school of scholarship. It's an academic discipline that holds that the United States is a fundamentally racist country, um, that the oppressor and oppressed distinction can be designed along racial lines with a kind of white patriarchal oppressor and a subordinate racial minority oppressed, um, and that in order to achieve racial equality or equality of outcomes uh, on the aggregate among racial groups, um, you have to do away with all of the oppressive structures in the United States, including the capitalist economy, including the two-parent family, uh, and including all of the laws that promote at the surface level equality and freedom, but according to the critical race theorists, are merely a disguised way of advancing racial domination. To the point where, you know, critical race theorists even argue that Abraham Lincoln, uh, who of course is famous for abolition, and the 14th Amendment, the Civil Rights Act, are all merely uh, insidious and increasingly clever schemes to advance racism. So let's talk a bit then how this plays out in practice. In practice, again, the oppressor and oppressed has gone through a really remarkable inversion um, if you look at the 20th century, um, at least as they portrayed themselves uh, at the beginning, left-wing and Marxist uh, social movements were centered around the working class, the, the kind of disenfranchised, the industrial proletariat. They were going to take over and commandeer the industrial apparatus and then the governing apparatus in order to make a more fair and equitable distribution of resources. That was the theory. Um, but in this critical race theory system, um, and perhaps has precursors in the actual experience of historical Marxism, you have a inver an inversion in which the oppressed are actually 
uh, a class of elite bureaucratic uh, kind of affirmative action intellectuals and administrators and and uh, people running the educational bureaucracy, the media, uh, uh, the kind of left-wing media. So you have uh, elites uh, that have gained position within elite institutions claiming the mantle of being the oppressed. Um, And so you have the privileged masquerading as the oppressed. And the oppressor is designated as conservative, white, working-class Americans. So the people who are working in industry, the people who are working in the service economy, the people who are at the kind of lower strata, maybe the bottom 30% of the economic strata, are now designated the oppressed. Quite a strange uh, inversion. And I like to think of it as a kind of switch where uh, in Gramsci's time, uh, the, 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 the Marxist theoretician Antonio Gramsci proposed the ideal of the organic intellectual, that uh, the people themselves that may not have a pedigree, they may not have elite institutional status, um, that they were the true uh, carriers of the Marxist philosophy. They had the true insight, and they were organized in an organic manner from the bottom up. Um, whereas with critical race theory, you have a self-conscious and total uh, inversion where you have now the synthetic revolutionary. Um, you have a revolutionary that is uh, afforded privilege because of, uh, let's say, affirmative action policies and other cultural practices. Uh, you have the revolutionary that has also gained entry into elite institutions, whether they're Ivy League institutions, premier state institutions, or other parts of the bureaucracy, uh, even in corporations, um, that then claim the mantle of the kind of elite revolutionary or synthetic revolutionary. Consequently, I think you have also a shift in the goals, not always the stated goals, but I think in the implicit goals. Um, if you look back into the black revolutionaries of the 1960s in the United States, with the Black Panther Party, Black Liberation Army, these were in some sense, a classic Marxist-Leninist in their rhetoric. They proposed seizing the means of production, taking over the Ford car, car manufacturing plant, running it themselves and providing you know, automobiles and other goods for uh, the oppressed and the uh, urban minority populations. So very famously, Eldridge Cleaver uh, was someone who actually you know, traveled a bit in Europe and North Africa and the United States and really promised this in his writing. He said the, the lumpen proletariat was the kind of inheritor of the Marxist line and the, the black lumpen proletariat in particular was going to seize the means of production and then uh, take what was their due. Um, you don't see that actually at all anymore. Um, the new synthetic revolutionary class is profoundly uninterested in economic production. Um, you're not going to send any of the, you know, kind of Ivy League professors to uh, manage the assembly line at a GM plant outside of Detroit, Michigan. This is very unappealing to this new revolutionary. And so what you have is you've moved from a desire of economic redistribution to symbolic redistribution. Um, And so what they're really fighting over is a spoil system in a postmodern and largely symbolic manner. They want the titles, they want the prestige, and they want the jobs and the bureaucracy. These are, in many cases, fake jobs. Diversity, equity, and inclusion officer at at Google, for example. Um, This is a highly prized job because you get to work at Google. You're making maybe three, four hundred thousand dollars a year in salary. And uh, you get to play act as a revolutionary, imposing 
gender pronouns or imposing critical consciousness exercises on uh, kind of vulnerable uh, and socially awkward computer programmers. Um, and so they're taking the titles, they're taking the prestige, and they're taking what amount to new public and privately funded sinecures to promote their ideology without having to do the drudgery of, and really the learning the, tech, the technical expertise of uh, running an assembly line or running a large agricultural enterprise. And so what they've done is essentially come to peace with the capitalist production apparatus. And they're saying, we are going to delegate production to the capitalists, uh, but what we want is we want control over the elite cultural institutions. And what we're finding is that over time, this, of course, degrades the productive capacity. Um, but for the time being, it's an almost parasitical relationship that is more than enough to serve the interests of the new synthetic revolutionaries. Uh, the power strategies. This is the next kind of key observation. One of them, of course, is, as it always has been, is violence. Uh, we saw this in the summer of 2020 after the death of George Floyd. You had riots in uh, more than 150 American cities. Um, and this is all designed to increase the pressure to get more concessions. And you see they, they manipulate three categories for the experience of, of the average person. Uh, guilt, first and foremost. Um, I think even more than fear which was the old Marxist category, you know. Uh, you, you take a baton to the side of someone's head, you drag them out of their home in the middle of the night, you threaten to execute their family. Um, you know, that is a kind of fear-based strategy. We have a guilt-based strategy. So what they're doing is they're implementing critical race theory in K-12 education, for example. Telling, dividing children by race to two sides of the room, telling, you know, essentially children of European descent, um, you should feel guilt, you should feel shame, you should feel responsible for uh, historical crimes committed by people who look like you. And telling the other side of the room, uh, you should feel uh, uh, um, anger, you should feel rage, you should feel a spirit of vengeance for the crimes perpetrated against people who looked like you in the past by people who looked like your classmates on the other side of the room. Um, this is something that was happening really all over the country. The second is... Uh, kind of degrading historical memory. So taking the really, really false and tendentious historic critical race theory narrative of American history, that all of the kind of landmarks of progress, the abolition of slavery, the 14th Amendment, the Civil Rights Act, were really uh, kind of false consciousness. They were a mythology that was designed to uh, put the revolutionary class to sleep. Um, again, really historically false, but the idea is to then uh, erase the historical memory, sometimes physically tearing down statues, but oftentimes in curriculum books, trying to dispatch with any narrative of American goodness or greatness or even a complex and multifaceted narrative of American history and replace it with an, a kind of, uh, uh, an acid wash of American history. And the third is uh, to, to work on identity as a whole and to delegitimize entire categories of identity, really creating kind of ident a series of identity taboos um, on the intersectional hierarchy, which is not just a hierarchy of perceived oppression, but it is actually a reverse hierarchy of moral value. That's really the key. It's actually um, using a relativistic frame in order to impose a very moralistic uh, um, idea. And then, you know, to, to close, what, what what do they want? That's a question that, that I found 
um, to be quite interesting because the critical race theorists never quite tell you what they want. They never, well, what would an ideal society look like for you? How would you govern the institutions? What would you do as far as legislation? It's never quite clear, but what is absolutely clear is that the critical race theorists, again, in contrast to the precursors and the 20th century Marxist revolutionaries, have actually no desire to govern. If you look at the early history, you look at Lenin's writing when he was in exile, um, he, you know, say what you will about him, but he had a desire to govern. He had a clear plan of action. He wanted to seize power at the top and impose his will on everyone below. The critical race theorists have no such ambitions and no such desires. Um, that, that, that may be actually kind of a, 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 a blessing in disguise. They're happy to exist as part of the bureaucracy. Um, they, they really want to, they want to operate only from the position of, uh, of a critical element. They want, to op they want to criticize, but they want to abdicate all responsibility of governing. Um, and so what their strategy is at heart, it's an anti-democratic strategy. They want to enter the layer of bureaucracy and K-12 education and post-secondary education and corporate HR and in the federal bureaucracy in the American context. They want to advance their ideology laterally outside the legislative process, outside the system of democratic consent, and then outside the consent of, say, parents in a K-12 school classroom. And in fact, when they were challenged for the first year that we challenged them and provided the evidence, told people what they were doing, they denied the existence of their own ideology. Um, this, again, is quite strange historically. Um, it doesn't actually project much confidence at all. If you're imposing your ideology, you're confronted with evidence of the imposition, and then you're denying that your ideology exists, I think it's because they want to operate in a method that is wholly anti-democratic because they know that subjected to democratic scrutiny and subjected to democratic decision-making, um, people would reject their ideology out of hand. And so it's this very odd one-two dance. It's kind of a Texas two-step where they coexist with democratic rule while at the same time trying to subvert democratic rule through their authority in the bureaucracy that, again, has never been sanctioned and unfortunately is actually very difficult to get rid of. Because any time that you try to impose any limit on the bureaucracy, um, they start screaming. I mean, it's really amazing. We're not doing critical race theory in K-12 schools, but if you prohibit critical race theory in K-12 schools, uh, this is beyond the pale. This is unacceptable. Which begs the question, if you're not teaching critical race theory, what are we banning? Theoretically, we should be banning nothing. And yet, uh, their response shows the lie. It demonstrates the lie. So how did they impose power? It's not through top-down control. It's not through legislation. It's through an increasingly decentralized method of control that is not coordinated directly. It can't be traced back to, 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 to one person. It's not uh, organized in a, in, as a conspiracy, um, but it's organized as a set of mutually reinforcing incentives and cultural patterns that uses media, technology, schools, human resources departments, and even corporate messaging campaigns that have all lined up behind what is a left-wing orthodoxy that has gained popularity in a certain elite strata of American society that is then using those institutions to um, impose its ideology through the various channels and creating incentives so that transgressing that ideology is seen as a 
really a mortal sin. Uh, and, and really, you put at risk your reputation, you put at risk your uh, occupation, you put at risk uh, your comfort, and in many cases, uh, for someone like me, and you go after it a little bit hard, you put at risk, to a certain extent, your physical safety. And so they've created a series of incentives, ranging from the softest incentive, really a kind of suggestion or a repetition or a training according to the media narrative. You see this even in advertising. Um, all of the advertising now in the United States is really kind of dovetails with ideology. You actually have biological men as Victoria's secret uh, swimsuit models. Um, very, very strange. Um, but that's this kind of suggestion layer all the way to the kind of street militant layer where someone will break your window, someone will you know, physically threaten you, someone will show up at your house, someone will send you, uh, 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 you know, death threats in the mail, that kind of thing. You have an increasingly soft to hard method of enforcement. But at the end of the day, what I've learned, I've studying this both on the intellectual history, but also studying it in practice and reporting on it in practice, is that at the end of the day, critical race theory ends in pure negation. It has no positive vision of society. It's not a reformist agenda, um, but really what you can see in the writings of Derek Bell, who's considered the godfather of critical race theory, Harvard law professor, whose students established the discipline of critical race theory. Um, Derek Bell was a smart uh, uh, man. He was, in the beginning of his career, a dedicated uh, civil rights attorney. He desegregated uh, and, and ran lawsuits in, I think, 300 school districts in the Deep South to integrate uh, those schools. He lost his faith in the United States and the civil rights movement and went to a philosophy of pure racial pessimism. And in fact, he was incentivized by elite institutions at the time um, to constantly reinforce that pessimism. He was, in a sense, financially and reputationally rewarded the more pessimistic he got. So that towards the end of the career, he developed really a racial paranoia. He thought and made the argument in print that, that black Americans were on the verge of a racial genocide in the United States. Um, he said racism was the permanent and indestructible feature of American life. Um, and, and, you know, he, he said that even the election of Barack Obama uh, was not a demonstration of racial progress, but was simply another governing elite in charge of a racist country. He was, of course, celebrated for this. Um, but what you see in his writing and you see in the CRT movement as a whole is that they can never move beyond critique. They, they, they abdicate all responsibility for proposing any policy. Um, and then ultimately, they're synthetic revolutionaries that are only interested in maintaining their own elite reputation, status, and sinecure. That's all it boils down to. And what it ends in is what the great economist Thomas Sowell uh, uh, he, he criticized Derek Bell and he said that, that Bell moved away from desiring an equality society and ended by desiring a revenge society. So that the spirit of revenge was really the driving force um, that could provide no reconciliation, no transcendence, no progress, even on the, its own terms. And so... Uh, I'm, I'm curious to listen to my fellow panelists, but I'll end uh, with just a few small comments. Um, you know, as I've spent the last week in, in Budapest here, um, 
you know, I, I see many American exports. Um, you know, I can get avocado toast. Uh, uh, I can read everything in English. Um, I, I, I can uh, get uh, sweatshirts with the names of American states on them, even in the Hungarian uh, uh, clothing shops. Um, and so even if something like critical race theory is not justified in any way by the history of Hungary, um, you know, which, you know, very difficult to compare American historical conditions and, and, and historical reality with the Hungarian, um, you know, it will find a way. Because critical race theory is not interested in accurate history. It's interested in blanket uh, uh, superimposition. And so um, what I think perhaps, and I'll tentatively say this, but I'm very curious to hear, especially from my Hungarian colleagues and counterparts, um, it does seem like in some way from what I've read in the foreign press, which again, I take with a large grain of salt, maybe a whole shaker of salt. Um, Hungary is in some ways this kind of perhaps a, a, an expression of this inversion of the oppressor and oppressed. Hungary is not the richest nation in Europe um, by any stretch. Um, Hungary, uh, I, I think from my reading of, 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 of history is, uh, and, and of the current policies is some, is an, is a, is a country interested in um, rediscovering, uh, after the collapse of communism, its historical identity, um, its religious identity, um, its family policy is oriented towards helping the broad working class in the country, um, which makes it, in the schema of critical race theory, a kind of oppressor, oppressor faction or oppressor nation. And perhaps this is why uh, when I read the left-wing press in the United States, it always has a kind of a meltdown about Hungary. It's always a very, uh, you know, acting, uh, you know, actually, when, they, when the Western kind of left-wing media criticizes Hungary, they criticize Hungary in the same way that they criticize me. So I feel an immediate affinity and affection for the country. Um, and, I, and I suspect that the narratives are false in the same way that the attacks on my work are false. But this is all to say that American exports are very powerful. Many of them are very good, uh, but some of them are not so good. And this is going to be one of them, if it hasn't made entry, I know in the UK it has, and other countries in Western Europe, um, it will be arriving shortly. And so you should prepare yourselves um, uh, politically, prepare yourselves intellectually, um, and not rest on the assumption that because it's a false uh, theory and because it can't be transposed accurately onto your history, um, it always finds a way.